The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Let's go find mine. These people, who are they? Hollywood Retired Republican League. Really? And I'm just fooling. He owns a chain of laundromats. He makes airplane parts. You haven't met Alfred yet, but I'm sure you remember Nathaniel. And come here. I'll help. You know about the book? What book? A new book? Do you know about it? It's going to be enormous, brilliant fountainhead. It'll look like a footnote. What is it? Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, what's it about? What's it about? It's, uh, well, uh, I don't know. I haven't read it. Uh, she hasn't finished writing it yet, but I... <laughs> she uh, called you. I understand there's a new book. No, it's not a book yet. Would it be possible to see some of it? Why should I possibly show it to you? Well, because I'd be your best reader and your most honest critic. Come along. Oh, cock-a-doodle-doo. Nobody here but us chickens. London. It is Thursday, October 27, 2011. I'm Bob Mech. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into colour and colour into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be and welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is always a number you can call to reach us. And please do call that number if you want to call us about today's subject. Today we're going to be talking about the right road to freedom. And basically, one of those roads that was always considered a way to freedom was called libertarianism. And today we're going to do our two cents on libertarianism. Isn't that about it, Robert? That's about it. Yeah, the whole show is devoted to investigating libertarianism. Yes, and, and some people might think, well, that's got nothing to do with me. I'm not interested in that philosophy. How does it affect me on a day-to-day basis? Well, you might be surprised. And this might not be the only, su- only show we do on this theme as such because libertarianism, in a way, uh, is discovered by many people. You and I went through it, Robert. It yep. seems to be an extension of conservatism, strangely enough, and of left-wing history, if you go back far enough. But Certainly, you know, the opening clip we just heard was from uh, the movie, um, what was the name of that movie? Passion, Passion of, of Ayn, Ayn Rand. Rand, starring Helen Mirren as Ayn Rand, and it's a, just a terrible movie. <laughs> oh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's an awful movie. It is particularly designed, it was instrumented to be an ad hominem attack on Ayn Rand. Yes. No question. And interestingly, put together by some people who were might be called libertarians. You know, Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged was an inspiration to millions, not the least to the two people sitting in this studio today, but also to many, many others who have, or who may have very differing views than Robert and I on a myriad of issues. One of uh, these groups you've heard us discuss in the past, in passing before, they're called conservatives. And another group on the so-called right wing with whom Robert and I would differ, perhaps even more strongly than with conservatives. And I know this surprises a lot of people because that group is, of course, libertarians. And there's a great irony in this because um, both groups tend to say that they, that they both, uh, you know, that they like Ayn Rand, that they appreciate her and stuff like that. And yet Ayn Rand herself came out explicitly despising both both groups and calling them anti-freedom. So hopefully we can straighten out some of these confusions today. And despite Rand's warnings, yes, it's true, Robert and I have both had backgrounds and involvements to some degree with both groups, conservatives and libertarians, with Robert having leaned more to the conservative side in his political movement and I to the libertarian side in our past. You never ran for any libertarian parties or anything like that, did you? No, but when I first became politically active, it was with the Libertarians for about a oh, year or it? so. I supported them. I didn't even them. know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I supported them, voted for them, that kind of a thing. Nothing major. 
although I'm being a little overly diplomatic to cover our butts because in reality we both jumped in whole hog in our past political adventures. And just as there are political parties now for both libertarians and for freedom, so too both terms libertarian and freedom extend well beyond their political party affiliations, having meanings of a much more generic nature, which doesn't help to unconfuse things. It's also true of conservatism, but we've already done that, and today we're doing libertarian. I've always wanted to avoid this subject, actually, Robert, because of the confusion that the word continues to represent for what we're doing here today. And because it's a label I don't think we can easily get rid of, people put labels on you. If they see you, you know, they've never seen a car before, you're a horse and buggy until they know that the car is not being pulled by a horse, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. Okay. So um, what I'm advocating and working towards today, both through my official involvement, even with Freedom Party and with my unofficial involvement with volunteer radio, the things I do politically, is something very different from libertarianism. Yet there is, of course, some confusion in the minds of many, mostly, ironically, among libertarians who seem to believe that they and their libertarian party and the philosophy they espouse are pretty well indistinguishable from what we're saying on this show and what we're doing in our political careers. And I think the differences are more than just academic, since at the root of the confusion lies many of the most fundamental questions that people have about how they are governed. So this isn't really just a debate about how the libertarians are, in our opinion, different from ourselves, philosophically and politically. Now, you know, if anyone on the face of the North American continent, Robert, understands a libertarian mindset and why it is a misdirected approach to liberty, I think that would be me. Can you think anybody in a better seat? I've been sitting in this very unique perch, having set my political foot in several political camp simultaneously over periods of my life. And this is how I learned the ropes. And I'm certainly not in any position here today, nor is it my intention to cast horrible judgments of eternal damnation upon anyone who might think of themselves as libertarian. That would be a bit hypocritical on my part. And moreover, let's face it, many libertarian writers and economists have made invaluable contributions to various fields, particularly in economics, like Murray Rothbard and even in support of many correct policies in government. Um, for example, Ron Paul is often cited as a libertarian Republican. You know, you've heard that mm -hmm. phrase, haven't you? And I would be the last person to deny that a lot of what I've heard from Ron Paul is right on target. You've heard us more than once on this very show air some of the most moving and passionate philosophically correct comments made by the first libertarian presidential candidate in the United States, Dr. John Hospers, who recently passed away. Comments made right here at the University of Western Ontario. And, you know, in the course of my own personal political involvement, I've had the privilege, and I do mean privilege, of having met and worked with possibly the world's leading and best-known libertarians, which is how I learned how not to do certain things. <laughs> One of them was, of course, economist Marie Rothbard, who was considered the founding of the whole founder of the whole movement. I met him in October '83 at the Royal York Hotel in Toronto, where both he and I were the only two keynote speakers at a function announcing the soon-to-be-created Freedom Party of Ontario on January 1st of the year following. And so, um, I remember speaking opposite him at that time. We were the only two speakers. It was a really weird affair, you know. I didn't even really know what libertarianism was, Robert, and there I am up on the stage with the leading libertarian in the world, practically, and talking about starting a new party. Um, I know I recall him saying a number of things where, in policy, I agreed with him, but I totally disagreed with the logic of how he arrived at his policy. That's essential. Bob. And that is extraordinarily essential, and that was where I started feeling a little uncomfortable with libertarian and what they were saying under the, that word. I also got to meet and know Professor Walter Block, who now teaches at a university in Arkansas. But when I was acquainted with him and how I met him was as the senior economist of the Fraser Institute. Libertarians have moved in in a lot of conservative circles. That's where you'll find a lot of them politically active today. And in that role is how I originally met him in a Toronto conference uh, that was being held on rent controls at the time. Dr. Block later was a guest speaker at a Freedom Party event on the environment, uh, to which I recall we also invited David Suzuki, but Dr. Su Suzuki turned us down for some reason. I don't oh know dear. why. <laughs> um, need I mention another world-famous libertarian, Mark Emery. 
today sitting in a Mississippi jail south of the border for his political activism as the Prince of Pot, but who in the days of our association was a key supporter of Freedom Party and even of me personally. I don't really know how many people today are aware of Mark's uh, association with myself and Freedom Party, but what most do not know about our association, the ones who are aware, is that Mark Emery was never an official executive member of Freedom Party in any way. And that was a part of the way we had to operate the party. Mark's support of the party was basically based on the same thing as anyone else would have supported the party, volunteer donations and his time involved. And But he did one thing different. We gave him a designation, an unofficial yes. designation as the action director. It described him to a team. And it described him perfectly and gave him the freedom he needed from the party to do certain things that might not have been completely partisan events in that sense. So it gave us a, a, a vehicle by which to work even though we came from different bases. I want to get into that later, and we certainly can't cover it all today. But it was kind of informal, and I think that relationship worked well because of that arrangement. And thanks also to um, the ISIL 2000, Individual Society, International Society for Individual Liberty, rather, uh, 2000 conference. It was held right here at the University of Western Ontario, of which I was the official registrar. Also, my last involvement officially with anything to do with libertarians. I also got to meet Barbara Brandon, who was actually associated with Ayn Rand herself and was married to Nathaniel Brandon, both of whom had a personal and professional falling out with Rand in later years. And, of course, um, she's one of the characters played in the movie, too. Uh, Barbara Brandon is played by Julie Delpy in the movie The Passion of Ayn Rand. It was interesting to meet the real people. And um, so it was, in, you know, to actually have met all these people and understand where they were coming from. What was their arguments? Where were the differences? And I'll tell you, libertarians argued amongst themselves all the time. And, still do. And they still do. And they still have differences of opinion that they have not settled yet, which is why I think they can't move on. Um, Barbara Brandon, of course, wrote the book, The Passion of Ayn Rand, which was turned into this movie, which we heard at the opening of the show today. And there was another less than famous yet very influential libertarian uh, named Michael Emerling, who we met early with the party. He also operates, I understand, under the name Michael Cloud. Mm -hmm. And he lives in the Las Vegas area, and he, he came up and talked to Freedom Party, gave us his one of his, two of his Art of Political Persuasion workshops, which we learned a lot of tactics and tricks and, and, and um, political arguments, how to answer certain issues. And... Um, I learned a lot of valuable things. Now, Michael Emerling also had the unique experience of having been a speechwriter for U.S. President Ronald Reagan <laughs> and, believe it or not, a comedy writer for the Smothers Brothers. Yes. And he used to tell us about a lot of the jokes that he wrote for them and stories behind them. And, and uh, I'll tell you, he was, you, you, you knew he was a writer for the Smothers Brothers. People, remember how many people came to his workshops? Yeah, it was quite uh, uh, Totally quite well entertaining. Attended. Well attended, and people just wanted to come back for more and more. So I can certainly say with some authority on the subject that I've been able to meet here and talk to the very top of the libertarian school of thought, if you will, on a level that gives me a very unique perspective. Now, the people all have varying degrees of input and, and expertise, and some of them have said great things, but libertarianism, that larger movement, is another matter entirely, because that's when you get into more of the political and in political practice, the term has in many ways come to mean almost anything to anyone, whether it's on the left or right of the political spectrum, which is weird. We already dealt with this phenomenon. Do you remember, Robert? During the debate over the um, voluntary long census, and at that time, Prime Minister Stephen Harper oh, yes. was actually being called upon to defend his libertarian views on the census. Hmm, that was interesting. And at the same time, same show we were doing too, so-called libertarian activist Mark Emery, the Prince of Pot, was being extradited to the U.S. by this libertarian Stephen Harper <laughs> for espousing his libertarian views on cannabis prohibition. You see the contradiction and the confusion already. Of course. Where is the distinction in the word libertarian being used as it was there in connection to those people? It, it, it just starts losing uh, some continuity at least. And let's face it, if I look at myself personally, okay, this is a separate thing. I've been through the entire political spectrum through my lifetime politically. Yes, I voted NDP, I voted Liberal, I voted PC, Conservative, Libertarian, Reform, United Alternative. And now, of course, the only party I vote for now is the Freedom Party. But today I understand why and why the others aren't going in a direction that I think government should be going in. So, you know, it's what happened, of course 
we we got involved with these various movements, as you did too. I didn't know you were that involved with the libertarians. Oh, in, not, in any, not that involved. But, I mean, I had talked to Kay Sargent and. Oh, I see those the, the local association there in yeah, Oxford and stuff uh, like yeah, that. Intercap, sure. Yeah, and um, like I said, voted for them, supported them. Um, I think I may have even handed out literature, but that was basically the extent of it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the his- I wasn't very politically active at that time. More on the, the support level, but mm-hmm. you know, um, I did. Uh, of course, I got sucked into uh, <laughs> running for the Libertarian Party in the '70s, a federal Libertarian I'm, Party. I'm, I'm glad you s- described it as like that, Bob. Being sucked in. Well, it was Mark Emery who talked me into it, and I never even heard of the party on the Friday night that I agreed to run for it. And it was Monday that the deadline was due. It was a long story. I think I've told it before, and, and that's how I got interested in politics. Strangely enough, by being up in front of a, of, of a public, having to answer questions, and learning for the first time, yikes, we're in trouble. When I saw the other people on the stage with me. Right. But I got involved to a point where I guess um, I was effective enough that my little constituency association that I started here in London became one of the bigger ones. Um, Some other disaffected libertarians in the Toronto area who had nothing to do with me broke off from the Libertarian Party, started a party called Unparty, which just tells you a lot you need to know about libertarianism. Yeah. (laughs) And um, but they had but they had that Ayn Rand statement of principles. And There's the that, sucking in. That's part. right. And that's what pulled a lot of us in. And and what was interesting was that when I took the party over, they insisted that that statement of principles be kept. And I'm, that was one of the conditions. And I'm going, okay, I'll do that. But they weren't running it according to that statement of principles, not in my mind. And so when we took the party over here in London, we changed the name on January 1, 1984, to the Freedom Party of Ontario. And from that day forward, it was not a libertarian party. It simply was not. It's not even on, the, on that scale. It's a, it was a completely new entity. Because the first thing we did that really bugged the libertarians was we immediately stated a purpose for government which they will never put in print. (laughs) Okay, We said on every piece of paper that we printed, we said the purpose of government is to protect the individual's freedom of choice. And that was just a marketing statement, but it let people know that we were not libertarians in the sense of, you know, anarchy, no government, and that kind of stuff. So we picked a name of the party that we thought was consistent with the product that we wanted to, to do and what it implied. And this wasn't done on a whim or a hunch, I have to tell you. Um, you know, we weren't disaffected um, people who had to sit in the park all day like today's occupiers. Uh, even Mark Emery and I, we were both happy kids, you know. We came from a happy middle-class family. We had no real complaints in, in the sense of, oh, the world is, is ending and life is horrible. It really wasn't. We wanted to keep it the way it was, and we saw it going in another direction. And that was sort of what our impetus was for the whole thing. And I remember uh, we approached the whole situation rather scientifically, if you want to put it that way. Uh, very objective. Intellectually. Intellectually. We went step by step. We asked ourselves questions that we didn't have the answers to. And I have to tell you, this approach saved me from my own errors, of, of which you know, all of us made many. Because we were committed to the scientific approach, let's say, to, our, to the challenge before us, you know, fighting for freedom, errors were not to be feared so much since our approach ensured that such errors would be corrected. We wouldn't be dogmatically sticking to them when we found out something was incorrect or, you know, let's stick with it despite our shame, remorse, and blame. You know, the only thing that we would, I guess, judge harshly was perpetuations of errors. And one of those errors is libertarianism. (laughs) So... I guess one of my first and largest errors concerned the challenge of getting enough supporters for my cause. And this is where the problem comes in for many political parties. This is not a problem unique to us. Do we take an inclusive or exclusive approach to membership and support? And, I mean, if you were starting a political party, you'd be saying, well, inclusive, right? No question. Why would anyone exclude anyone from a political movement that requires popular support? And... You know, so that's what we did. We had this open-door policy, but we had to protect our our nature, the nature of the party from uh, having, you know, allowing what, what happened to other parties, like the Liberals and the Conservatives being taken over by people by totally, with, with totally differing ideologies because the parties misunderstood their nature. They thought they were a democracy amongst themselves when, in fact, they're just private associations working within a democracy. And so my thinking at the time, while misled in retrospect, turned out to be a blessing in disguise uh, for the most ironic of reasons. 
In attempting to avoid the necessity of having to insist that everyone who support the party had to operate on a very similar philosophy, I discovered the very opposite. You know, I learned the hard way why, and this is the most critical of distinctions, within the executive or the leadership or a representative role within any political activity, not just our party, but any party, this would apply, that everyone must toe the party line, end quote. You know, people hate that, you know, for no no party can survive on any other principle. I'm sorry, it doesn't work any other way. You can't have 301 members of a political party all touting a different philosophy. There wouldn't be a party anymore. What is the commonality? What makes them a party? It is not possible to allow competing philosophies into the same political action camp and expect anything positive to come out of it in terms of the individual people going into it. And, you know, to whine and cry about it just because you wish it could be otherwise, it's just immaturity and naivety. I mean, that's you can't do it any other way. Just look at the confused disaster that's the great occupation now. You know, it's this eternal dialogue that has no chance of going anywhere but down. And so... uh, and that's all they want, too. They just want a dialogue. They don't want answers. They don't want to go anywhere. They just they don't, they aren't even they aren't even asking the questions, and that's the problem. But I found this was an issue that um, as long as we were open, our door was open to too many people coming in with differing ideas, who all said, by the way, they, they believed in freedom and they supported the same cause, but they had different ways of thinking. And um, that led to all kinds of problems. You, can, you, you might think you, that you, just because you agree on certain political policies that you can work with somebody, you could on an ad hoc basis, separate from a larger group that has you know, larger concerns. Um, but that's the only way it could be done. And, and that's something that we learned, certainly. If you are going to actually create a movement, create something that runs on a philosophy, which is the nature of what political parties are supposed to be, then you have to be very clear about, um, you know, who's running the party. You can, you can have an open-door policy and have all kinds of people into the party, but uh, they can't be in the driver's seat. Let's put it that way. I'm going to take a quick break now when we come back. I have a little story to tell about to illustrate the principle behind this and why it must be so. And we'll be back right after this. Well, our boys are still on their way to the annual Big Moose Convention in Peaceful Valley, Missouri. I didn't know there were any moose in Missouri, Bullwinkle. Oh, certainly, Rock. Look, here's a picture of one. Boy, Missouri may sure look different. Well, they are a little smaller. And they got shorter hair. And shorter noses, too. And their antlers aren't as big. And they give milk. Milk? This isn't a moose, Bullwinkle. It's a cow. All these same it's a honorary moose. How can a cow be an honorary moose? Well, we had a big membership drive a while back. Guess we got carried away a little. The other important joke for me is one that's uh, usually attributed to Groucho Marx, but I think it appears originally in Freud's wit and its relation to the unconscious. And it goes like this, I'm paraphrasing. Um, I would never want to belong to any club that would have someone like me for a member. Welcome back to Just Right. And remember, this is a community university radio station. It covers the local music scene. And ours is the only radio station that regularly plays local independent artists in all genres on all our programs. Remember, donations over $20 qualify for a tax receipt. Call me at uh, 519-661-3600 and pledge your support to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, remember, please call again. Yeah, Robert, that was, uh, you know, we're members of a of an association here too, aren't we? Sure. <laughs> and it works that way because we have a common cause in that sense. Uh, you know, the clips we just heard uh, were from Rocky and Bullwinkle, that old cartoon where, where you know, their Bullwinkle has a moose club and they let too many cows in and all of a sudden the annual speech is being given by a cow and it's no longer the moose club, right? And of course that illustrates that the il- idea that political parties can be taken over. Very easily and, uh, you know, almost invisibly. You don't even notice it. You welcome it right in and the whole thing changes before you know what happened. Uh, you know, going back in, in the early days of our political activism, I guess freedom activism, 
I remember the simple formula of political action for the libertarian types was simply to give somebody a copy of Atlas Shrugged along with its companion book, Capitalism, The Unknown Ideal, and pretty well say, go and figure out the rest yourself, right? And that was exactly how I got involved in politics. That's almost literally what Mark Emery did when I ran out for, on my first all-candidates debate. I went into City Lights bookstore there, and he <laughs> pulls out a copy of, of Capitalism. He said, here, read this. That's I'm just gonna... what he did for me. I know. <laughs> I went up down to the Freedom Party offices when somebody told me about you guys, and uh, Mark Emery was there, and he said, have you read Rand yet? And he says, here, read, here, read Atlas Shrugged. Right. <laughs> well, I didn't, actually. I went out and read her first book. Uh, uh, what was that first book? We the Living. And oh, it went from there, yeah. yeah. Um, that was a sad book, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the ones closest to her, her real life, from what I understand. Yes, yeah, semi-autobiographical. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we never thought of platforms and planks. These kind of things were unheard of. We just went in with this, oh, well, you know, freedom of choice. That's what we're all about, right? <laughs> and we thought all you needed was principles. What, you know, that was a prevailing belief. And that it was this belief that was, I guess, the source of unnecessary and and painful conflict among those who were really dedicated to building a, a free society. So when we first got started in, in, in getting politically involved, none of us were really aware of the difficulties we would face in terms of, in the terms I'm able to describe today, let's put it that way. I mean, me and Mark Emery getting together, even though it was sort of informal, you know, you had essentially two different personalities, like really different, two different philosophies, even on the basis of which we operated, two different ways of campaigning, and we found ourselves in this, you know, circumstance of being in a political party presented with these unusual opportunities, forming an organization that would never have been an objective pursued independently by either of us, you know, if we were on our own. So, uh, uh, but the main thing, and and the difference that happened when Freedom Party came in, and the the way we could identify the two groups was that one group ended up being more anti-state, and one group was pro-freedom, which are two different things, with a clearly stated purpose to government, and that was the Freedom Party faction. And so, you know, how can I illustrate this briefly before we get to the bottom of the hour here? You know, I thought of a little... I haven't thought it all the way through, but a very simple parable, if you want to put it that way. You know, you could say that, you know, once upon a time there was a democracy where there were three different political parties working together in a coalition to govern that democracy. There were the Blues, the Reds, and the Clears. The Blues believed that thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. And they believed it because it was God's will, and it was consistent with the Word of God, and it was tradition. The Reds believed that thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal. They believed it because a majority currently believed in that and supported those things. It was the people. That's why thou shalt not steal. And then there was a third group, the Clears. They believed that thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill. But they believed it on the principle of applying reason, reality, and logic to the problem of social interaction and arriving at the principle of individual rights. So, on the surface, all three of these groups believe in the same thing. Since they all believe in the same thing, they all believe thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill, then they should be able to work together pretty easily, right? (laughs) Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And we found that out ourselves, haven't we, Robert? Yes, indeed. Because they don't believe in the same things. It's not the policies they believe in. It is important how they arrive at their conclusions. To say that these three groups can work together to achieve what each of them says are the same things is simply to not understand the nature of how ideologies and politics function in the real world and not to understand why there will always be, I've kind of figured it out, always these basic three distinct groups, that kind of motivational groups, you know, it doesn't matter almost the politics, but you have those three motivations and why they can never share a common goal. Now, my fairy tale is exactly that. It is very unreal. It is a fairy tale that could not possibly transpire as told. Because if you had three groups or individuals trying to cooperate on some common cause, with one operating on faith, one on consensus, and the third on reason, whatever agreements they might share or have would be temporary at best and non-existent at worst. What if all of a sudden the fellow who believes thou shalt not kill because God told him so, God tells him something else that morning, and all of a sudden... That's not the reason anymore. What happens if for some reason the popularity dips under 50% for the support of individual rights? Does that invalidate them? 
It does in a lot of democracies. To the Reds, yes, it does. Yes, it does, and that's exactly what happens. You know, Ayn Rand uh, once pointed out the fa- the problem of, of of compromise when you're working together on a goal that you want to have the the same goal, and it's one that I've always found basically works. There are some nuances to it that don't apply here and there, but in most contexts, it's contexts it does. And that is, uh, she had just three rules. She says, one, in any conflict between two people or groups who hold the same principles, it's the more consistent one who wins. That makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. If we both believe the same thing, the one who sticks to the path will win his case out. Now, the second one is in any collaboration between two men or groups who hold different basic principles, okay? So you believe in, you know white, I believe in black, whatever, it is a more evil or irrational one who wins. And the reason for that is very plain and forward, because whatever you define the good and evil as, the good has nothing to gain from compromising with the evil or cooperating with evil. It can only lose in terms of its own reference. Evil can always gain. It always gains in a compromise with good. And that's why when you listen to who is in favor of compromising on any given situation, look carefully, because usually it's the dark side, Luke. (laughs) It is. Check it out. And, of course, um, the third rule was when opposite basic principles are clearly and openly defined, it works to the advantage of the rational side. When they're not defined but hidden or evaded, it works to the advantage of the irrational side. And I guess that's the whole name of the game when it comes right down to it, to be defi- to define or be defined. And I think that's the message that we could say is coming up in this next, er- at next excerpt we're going to hear. And this is um, an interesting commentary. I've played some uh, excerpts from Dr. Tom Dorman before. This is also taped here at the University of Western Ontario back in 2000 at the Libertarian get-together. And um, Dr. Dorman wasn't really your typical libertarian. He was in the libertarian camp, and he had some criticisms of being there. He was great on his issues of uh, medicine because he had practiced in England, in the United States, and in Canada and had a lot of interesting insights on those issues. However, when it came to his uh, insights on um, politics and government and epistemology, which he talks about in this next clip, I have very mixed feelings. Um, I agreed with some of what he said, but boy, when it came to that definition of communism he gave, I had to cringe. Anyways, we'll listen in, and we'll be back right after this. And of course, symbolic in this is uh, George Orwell and his famous novel. Um, And he coined the term newspeak, and in fact, I gave you the example of newspeak. Incidentally, I don't like you, all of you, because you use the word libertarian. As far as I'm concerned, it's liberty. And the Aryan adds nothing to the sense. <laughs> it is the, it is the um, central uh, uh, communist influence which has taken away the word liberty from you and put you into the position of calling yourselves libertarian. Because in the last century, uh, liberal and liberty were used for what they mean and you have been painted into a corner of using this second-class word because they have taken the high ground uh, terminologically. And in America, the word liberal means exactly the opposite of what it literally means. Incidentally, the word communism is quite interesting. I happen to be a communist. You're asking, what are you doing in front of this group then? It is I who work according to my ability to feed my wife and children according to their needs. And it is my wife who caters to our family according to her ability for educating the children, for preparing meals for us and keeping a home according to her ability and according to my needs and the needs of my children. And my children go to the university and study so they represent the prospect for the future of my family, but at the present time they're just absorbing funds from dad. (laughs) And the grandparents represent the residue of knowledge and wisdom in our family from which we all benefit. We live in a commune. It's a voluntary commune. That is communism. 
And what, you laughed at me earlier, and what does the word communism mean to you? It means a, a forceful dictatorship by the likes of Joe Stalin imposing his unrestricted will and tyranny on a whole country. Is that communism? No, it isn't. That is totalitarianism. And yet the word has been turned on its head by the likes of Friedrich Engels and Karl Marx, etc. Um, I think that if we are serious about being uh, liberal, we need to be serious about the use of language. And I don't think it's a trivial issue because... Thank you. Because we think with language. It's part of the human condition that the thought processes use language. And if we adopt the words of the opposition, we're doomed right there. That's my opinion. So we owe a lot of understanding to this, to this socialist, by his own admission, George Orwell. But as he matured and towards the latter part of his life, towards the end of the 40s, he realized the horrors of what he had been inducted into as a young man, and he wrote the famous novel you're familiar with. collecting names on a petition to request the United States government to break relations with San Marcos, which is being ruled by a total military brutal dictatorship opposed to any concept of civil liberties. Would you sign? Sure. Let me ask you, how can I find out more about your cause? Because I have a lot of spare time. Oh, would you like to volunteer for the volunteers for San Marcos? Is it possible to discuss that over dinner tomorrow night? It doesn't have to be tomorrow night, of course. I mean, I'm wide open for the next six years. Oh, well, I actually have a yoga class tomorrow night, and I couldn't miss that. Yoga night. I love yoga. Do you really? Yoga is it's one of my great passions. I love Eastern philosophy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's metaphysical it's and metaphysical. redundant. Yes. Abortively pedantic. <laughs> I know just what you mean. Thank you. Uh, have you ever read the I Ching? Not, not the actual Ching itself, but I, I, I have d dabbled in Kierkegaard. Oh, well, of course he's Danish. Yes. <laughs> you, he'd be the first to admit that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Funny, typical uh, political conversation. Yeah, I absolutely. Guess. I had no idea what either of them were speaking about. <laughs> yeah, and you know, conversations like that and topics like that were not unexpected at that libertarian convention. We heard yep. some really weird ones, anarcho-capitalism, um, um, what was the other one, um, tribal anarchy, and oh my, my goodness, just things you wouldn't, wouldn't believe. But um, got to remember, this is a fundraising week here at CHRW, and uh, maintaining a radio station is an expensive undertaking. Robert, do you know CHRW maintains a 24-hour-a-day operation for under 330000 bucks a year? That's not bad. That's 8,760 hours of programming a year, and you and I do only 50 of those. Yikes. <laughs> That's 8,710 on top of what we do here. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Call us at 519-661-3600 to pledge your support to CHRW. And if the lines are busy, please call again. And Robert, we're talking about libertarians, and um, you know, we just heard uh, Dr. Dorman before the break there, who said we have to be very serious about the language, and then just butchered it. <laughs> right? He did actually. Yes. I, I have to. I was just shocked, and this was typical of what was going on there. You know, I was just cringing. I'm thinking everything else he said was so great, and then he got into that little diatribe, and I'm saying, oh wow. And it just tells you so much. He he says he's a communist. Well, I was, you know, he's in the right group then. Maybe I don't know. But he says it's not communism, it's totalitarianism. Well, I'm sorry, look up the definition of communism in any dictionary. You, want, you might want to change those, those definitions, you go right ahead. But uh, my goodness, that's not going to help clear things up unless we're all on the same page. Mm -hmm. Define or be defined is what you said yes. before, yeah, mm -hmm. so correct. Yeah, have you never noticed that uh, just recently, especially in the last four or five years, there's been, uh, well, with the recession and the collapse of the American dollar and the bankruptcies of several European states, there has been a certain rise in the use of the word libertarian mm -hmm. and a rise with the Tea Party movement and Ron Paul and people like that, and also a commensurate rise in the sales of the novel, novels of Ayn Rand, like yes. Atlas Shrugged. 
The movie just came out. By the way, the movie's playing in Toronto uh, tomorrow for the first time in Canada. Yeah. But I also heard it was terrible, so I'm not. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, I'm disappointed. From a trusted source, so I'm not going to say anything more. <laughs> I'm disappointed already. That's terrible. Um, but people shouldn't confuse the two things the rise of uh, the use of libertarianism and the rise of the Atlas Shrugged and the Ayn Rand novels. Now, what I'm about to say in the next little while is designed to be a critique of libertarianism, much as yours was. But there's one aspect of libertarians I find important, and you mentioned it to me last night, Bob, and that was that they're asking the right questions about the proper function of government in society. Nobody else asks those questions. You have to hand it to them, at least that they're thinking about it and talking. Thinking is probably a wrong word. Talking about it. Um, and the question goes unasked by any other established political party and unasked by any established media, although that's slowly changing. It's interesting. The questions that you and I would get asked in a normal course of our political activity would never be asked of a, of a, of a member of a larger party, for example. You yes. Know? Where's, where's your liberal party actually going to? What's your philosophy? What is your end game? You know, nobody ever <laughs> asks them that. Yeah. Now, back in 1986, a man by the name of Peter Schwartz uh, of the Intellectual Activist, which was a publication I subscribed to, and also he's the chairman of the board of the advisors of uh, the Ayn Rand Institute, he wrote an essay, a rather lengthy essay, an analysis of libertarianism. He called Libertarianism the Perversion of Liberty. And if you can get a hold of a copy, I would yeah, encourage you to get our attention with that word, eh? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Now, in it, he takes apart the philosophy of libertarianism and lays it bare. What's left is a failed movement of the left, not unlike the Occupy Wall Street protests in its chaotic makeup and distorted messages. The similarities are amazing, they Robert. Are. I, I, yeah. I watch them and I go, wow, this is deja vu for me. It's a parallel, yeah. Now, just as the Occupy Wall Street movement has attracted people from all political persuasions, but primarily from the left, so too as the libertarian movement attracted a diverse group of people, often from competing philosophic camps. Now the term, just to go back a little bit, the term libertarian was first coined as far back as 1857 by none other than an anarcho-communist. That's what he was described as, Joseph de Jacques. Now its intellectual leaders in more modern times were people like uh, the libertarian socialist or anarcho-syndicalist, as he describes himself, Noam Chomsky, and the anarchist, who you talked about before, Murray Rothbard. He actually thought of himself as an anarcho-capitalist, which, of course, is an oxymoronic term. Correct. <laughs> if you have anarchy, you can't have capitalism, and vice versa. Now, the writings of Ayn Rand, Frederick Bastiat, and Ludwig von Mises have also influenced the modern development of libertarians, but it has been the method of libertarians, i found, to pick and choose what they like in the writings of these people and reject anything that suggests moral instruction. Ayn Rand was not a libertarian, as you mentioned before, Bob. She was an advocate for capitalism, at least in the political realm. Libertarians are anti-state while Rand was pro-freedom. Rand saw authority properly defined and constrained to be a necessary and proper element in any free society, while libertarians consider any authority to be a necessary evil, but evil just the same. To quote Rand, I disapprove of, disagree with, and have no connection with the latest aberration of some conservatives, the so-called hippies of the right, she was referring to libertarians, who attempt to snare the younger and more careless ones of my readers by claiming simultaneously to be followers of my philosophy and advocates of anarchism. Anyone offering such a combination confuses his inability to understand either. Anarchism is the most irrational, anti-intellectual notion ever spun by the concrete-bound, context-dropping, whim-worshipping fringe of the collectivist movement, and that's where it belongs. Now, Harry Binswanger, a contemporary um, Randian had, uh, objectivist, had this to say of libertarians. Quote, in the philosophic battle for a free society, the one crucial connection to be upheld is that between capitalism and reason. The religious conservatives are seeking to tie capitalism to mysticism. The libertarians are tying capitalism to the whim-worshipping subjectivism and chaos of anarchy. To cooperate with either group is to betray capitalism, reason, and one's own future, unquote. 
<clears throat> libertarians have accepted many tenets of Rand's political philosophy, but have rejected her metaphysics, her epistemology, but most of all, her ethics. Anyone who would suggest a system of morality to a libertarian is thought of as being authoritarian, imposing a subjective set of standards of behavior on them. They would ask, who are you to decide what is right or wrong for a person for, for a way for a person to act? Or how can you say for certain that what you say is moral and it actually is? The libertarian would laud Rand for her advocacy of capitalism, her politics, but they accept it only as a concrete, a system of economics and political or politics devoid of the fundament from which it arose. Now this strikes to the heart of what I believe to be the fault with libertarianism. You've mentioned it before, Bob, in your introduction as well. A libertarian is unable to properly defend capitalism, or even liberty for that matter, except in concrete and pragmatic terms. Their arguments defending capitalism you'll find to be economic, such as, oh, quote, sound money based on gold would prevent runaway inflation, unquote, that kind of a thing. Or pragmatic, more people benefit from capitalism than from communism. Rand spent much of her life defending the philosophic foundation of capitalism. It's an integral part of a complete philosophy which extols man as a heroic being, not some hippie living in a commune somewhere where anything goes, as long as you don't hurt anyone else. Liberty to Rand was a necessary condition if man was not only to survive, but to rise to a limitless potential. Liberty is something to be defended vigorously, but it must be done properly. And liberty without a philosophic context will fall to anyone with a better pragmatic excuse for abolishing it. Capitalism stands on a solid ethical foundation, and to reject the foundation is to reject capitalism. Libertarians reject the foundation and therefore reject capitalism and are therefore the enemies of liberty and not advocates for it. I think, I think the essence of that is <clears throat> that the libertarians have reduced themselves almost strictly to a political sphere. Totally and just politics. Just that's politics. It. And you can't do that, even though you are operating in a political sphere. I mean, who supports the party, that's one thing. But, but operating the party, you know, and running something and trying to get in a direction that you want to get going, and you can't do it that way. That's right. And uh, it just won't work. Now, what's coming up in the next mm -hmm. little break are two clips from the ISIL conference that... Um, it was held here at the University of Western Ontario in 2000. First, we'll hear from uh, Linda Rawls following, and then following her, uh, Sharon Harris. Give a listen to some of the ideas that they're talking about. First of all, with Linda Rawls, think of the big tent theory of all of the different kinds of anarcho-hyphenated libertarians that they uh, bring into the uh, realm. And later on after that, Sharon Harris talking, uh, what I got from this was her uh, epistemology. So, we'll be back mm. right after this. Um, when I come to these conferences, I find the debates between the um, pragmatists and the purists and the uh, minarchists and the anarchists all very interesting. Um, but I also get very frustrated with them. Because what I want to say to everyone is, if you want to secede from the government you're in, if you want to start your own tribe, if you want to, whatever you want to do, I support you. But if that's not your thing, and you want to fight for liberty where you are. I think that all of us have to use whatever weapons we have. Uh, as Mark was talking about lawyers and money, I was very happy because you know that song, uh, Lawyers, Guns, and Money? Libertarians, you got to embrace lawyers, guns, and money. You know, I mean, it doesn't matter as long as you end up in a society that is more free. Um, I know that we want a simple solution. And there isn't always a simple solution. I think sometimes we have to uh, scrape out that little corner of freedom um, one second or a minute at a time any way that we can. Um, I also think we have to beware of the traps. Uh, you know, we are often anti-politician. We're anti-lawyer. Um, we're anti-wealth. Uh, we seem very populist. I'm sympathetic to all those things. But some of our best weapons are those things. Some of our best weapons in the United States are the Anglo-Saxon common law and the Bill of Rights. Um, it may not always sound so sexy and exciting is pure revolution, which when we get there, I'll be there with you. 
But for now, there is a lot left in both the civil and criminal uh, law in the United States that we can use. If there were more libertarians who were lawyers and we sued the government every other day, every time they transgressed our rights, I think we'd end up with a little bit more freedom. Now, um, thank you. My third preliminary point is that no governmental entity should have sovereign immunity. It doesn't, make, it doesn't make any sense to me that a sovereign, which I'm not really sure I agree that anything should be sovereign other than the individual. Um, when you look on our, our logo of ISIL, you don't see um, either a tribe or a country or a nation. You see an individual. And I'm not opposed to tribes or nations, um, but they shouldn't have sovereign immunity and they shouldn't have, I will not respect their sovereignty except to the extent that any entity, even if all of you in this room go and form your own government tomorrow, I will respect you as a sovereign only to the extent that you respect the sovereignty of me as an individual. is ideas travel through society and there are three phases of an ideological revolution. The first phase is the discovery phase. The second phase is the education phase and the third phase is the popularization phase. Now John Stuart Mill mentioned what happens to these ideas during these three phases. During the first phase is ridicule. During the second phase is argument. Anyone ever had any arguments? Um, and the third phase is acceptance. Everybody knows that, right? The people in the discovery phase, now these people who discover ideas, they get their ideas from inspiration, from pondering, from thinking. These are original ideas. They don't read a book about it because no one's written the book yet, right? So they come up with these ideas. They observe things and they think of things. And then they look around for somebody. These are people who are abstract thinkers. And these abstract thinkers look around for another abstract thinker who might want to argue about that and might want to learn that too, and they teach it to them. So these people in the second phase come along, and they get their ideas from books, from lectures, and from thinking about these ideas. Now, in the third phase, people get their ideas in a different way. In the third phase, people get their ideas through testimony and osmosis. Testimony is someone telling them that it's true, someone that they trust, and osmosis is it's simply in the air. Now, these people in the third phase are probably concrete thinkers in this area, okay? Now, all you intellectuals might scoff at this idea of concrete thinkers, okay? Uh, but um, consider the fact that most of our ideas do come from osmosis. Most of our ideas do. For example, I believe that the world is round, and I believe that it goes around the sun, despite the fact that my senses tell me otherwise. Now, why do I believe this? I believe it because my mommy told me that, my teacher told me that, the World Book Encyclopedia told me that, testimony, right? And I also believe it because it was just in the air. I mean, nobody was going around singing, love makes the world go flat. No. This idea was just in the air. And maybe I'm an abstract thinker in the area of political science, but I happen to be pretty much a concrete thinker in the area of astrophysics. <laughs> I don't know if that's abstract thinking or not. Remember, you can always pledge a donation or go online to donate to chrwradio.com, and you can do that at any time of day, even if you're listening to this show online, either on chrw's own online archive or on our own at www.justrightmedia.org. Call us at 519-661-3600. Pledge your support to CHRW. If lines are busy, call again. And Robert, what we just heard was horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> it really was. And to think you that know, this is at a conference for individual liberties. Th this is, you know, there's, there's a speaker saying, if you want to succeed, is, is that what we're doing? We're here for secession, you know? She says, whatever you want to do, I'll support it. And then she, then she, on top of that, she goes to something opposite. You know, lawyers, guns, and money. We're going to sue the government out of existence. That's right. It was Linda Rawls, and she also said, it doesn't matter as long as you end up with freedom. Well, it does matter well, how you get there. And that's not freedom, what you'd end up with in those that's situations. Right. And then secondly, we had Sharon Harris, and 
her... I don't know what to make of that. That was truly bizarre. Uh, well, well anybody who, who, has, who, who, who senses tell them the world is flat is not looking up at the sky at night. They've never seen the moon. They've never seen the sun. No one ever believed the world was flat. That has never been a historical fact, even. And to say that that's a logical conclusion. He's an oblate spheroid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which it is, by the way. Now, this libertarian epistemology that we captured in the clip with Sharon Harris, ideas come from either being, some, or being told something or it's in the air and is captured by osmosis. Yeah, it's the HRW. It's on oh, the air. Oh, my. <laughs> you know, thinking is a process of identification and integration. It's not an automatic process. It's a conscious process. It requires focus and effort and choice. You do not acquire ideas or thoughts through osmosis. Now, this kind of epistemology, which rejects reason and logic, is at the root of libertarianism, I think. Reason and logic are the epistemological contexts which are being dropped by the context-dropping libertarians. Liberty, freedom, capitalism, to a libertarian, exist outside of any other philosophic context or framework. And it's this framework which precedes and supports the concept of political freedom and capitalism. If you refuse to understand the necessary philosophic preconditions for capitalism, and it does require a deliberate effort to refuse to understand, then you cannot properly defend it. Capitalism becomes just another system like any other ism, and if you thought of it, it, it can be thought of as just like any other valid system. Yeah, well, one's, they're interchangeable one's no different then. than the other. Yeah, they're interchangeable. Right? And it's going to fall, as it's doing right now, due to ignorance of its moral, epistemological, and metaphysical roots. The tragic result of modern libertarian parties today is that it's attracting true advocates of capitalism. Just as you said before, Bob, these individuals are reaching out in desperation to any political movement they think will promote freedom and capitalism. Unfortunately, these kinds of libertarians, the pro-freedom and not simply the anti-state libertarians, are not actually libertarians at all. And their passion for freedom is being swallowed into a collective of irrational leftists. Consider the inhabitants of this big tent that Linda Rawls sort of referred to there of libertarianism. The anarchists, those who promote a stateless society. The geo-libertarians, if you haven't heard of them before, they believe that land is an asset held in common and anyone claiming any land to be private must pay a rent to the commons for the benefit of restricting entry to others. <laughs> the left libertarians or the libertarian socialists who oppose capitalism and wage labor and the right libertarians who support capitalism but only as an economic system, not as an integrated political ideal in a greater philosophy. And by the way, there's also a subgroup I would think, I would describe them as nihilists who claim that morality doesn't exist. Uh, I think the youth of the day might call them emos. Well, they're all welcome under the Big Tent, aren't they? Yeah, the Big Tent of libertarianism. If such a large group of competing ideologies are held together by one underlying common agreement, hatred of the state, hatred of authority. Such a collective is no place for an advocate of freedom or capitalism. Those that stay don't stay for long, like you and I. They soon find out that while they may share a common belief that we are over-governed, that is where the commonality ends. To these people, I would suggest channeling your energy into promoting freedom, not tearing it down, not tearing down government for the sake of it. The promotion of freedom is a positive endeavor, having a positive goal. And that's what Bob and I have been doing with this show. We're trying to promote the virtues of freedom from its root, from the metaphysics to the epistemological to the ethical to the political. And that doesn't always necessarily mean destroying government like the libertarians. I agree. And with everything we said about libertarians today, Robert, we haven't even touched upon the big issues that will have to remain for a future show sometime. And that is the whole issue of libertarians and the use of force, how they define force in society, force in government, taxation and voluntarism. And of course, the whole issue of sovereignty that we already yeah. heard played out there. But that's for a future show. And we've got to go today. Because today's show is over and we're going to ask you to join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the Because it seems to me that this country is so often a 
redneck, cad, peckerwood, bohunk, hee-haw, gun-toting, psycho-Christian, anti-choice, homophobic, gimme-cap-wearing, militia, armband, sporting, huge belt buckle with your name on it that you wear upside down so you can go, oh, shit, that's my name! <laughs> kind of place. And clearly the reason the United States is this way is England's fault. Now, once upon a time, the English sent people all around the world, right? And to our country, we got the pilgrims. Mm -hmm. They celebrate Thanksgiving in England, by the way. It's called off, Puritan <laughs> Day. And we're taught a lot of lies growing up, right? About American history. Really, Greg? Which ones? All of them. <laughs> Thank you.